This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. Happy New Year and welcome back to the podcast for 2024. It's a special episode today as it's our 200th episode, which is funny because at this point, we've probably done closer to what feels like 250 episodes when you include all the case studies, the bonus episodes, the deleted episodes, the episodes that were recorded but never made it live to the public. But regardless, according to our official episode counter, we are at 200. So thank you for making it through here with us. Our aim for today's episode is to just to pack the most amount of gold nuggets we can fit into about a 50 or 60 minute episode or however long it takes. And this journey of podcasting has resulted in tons of research from us, researching guests, interviewing them, conversations before and after the recordings with their guests, which we hate to say sometimes um, are the best parts where they come up with absolute gold nuggets. Uh, new training and racing science we're always looking into, episode preparation. And over the journey, we have what feels like an infinite list of wisdom, training and coaching and racing wisdom. So we want to give you as much of it in one key episode as possible. So dad, Welcome to the 200th episode, one we're very proud of. Let's start with our normal segment, what are you grateful for? Who would have thought that we could uh, actually nail 200 episodes uh, over this long journey? I've been talking about it for a few episodes now. I can't wait to see the 200th episode. So now we're finally here. Well done. Um, A big shout out to you, Joe, because you do um, pretty much all the work um, and I just turn up and you ask me a lot of questions and and hopefully uh, I give you some some decent answers and um, yeah, really kudos to you because you really make this happen and you've made it happen from day one and um, yeah, really, uh, we're really proud of uh, what we do and uh, we absolutely love giving tips to people for free, uh, for people who can't afford coaching and uh, the gratitude we get when we go to events or even emails or, or texting on, or Instagram notes we get uh, really make it worthwhile because people are so grateful and telling us that they base their whole program for their event uh, on our training tips and um, so we must be giving some decent detailed information uh, which people have been able to use uh, to their advantage so yeah really really grateful for that it um, is nice when when someone messages and says i used all your tips from your podcast and it helped me train and and race the race perfectly to their goal. So we go, well, we must be doing okay then if, we, if they can get all that from the podcast. So yeah, look, my gratitude is, is very similar. Um, just grateful to have an audience. When we started this, it was more for our own athletes benefit. Um, I started interviewing you to help really just get some more concepts across. We wanted all our athletes to understand. But we made the episodes public because we thought, why not? And it's not lost on me that um, we now have a massive audience um, that we get to do these episodes for. And so we put a lot of preparation into them. Um, we'll, yeah, and we put a lot of thought into our coaching and racing tips. And um, yeah, that's because we value your time as a listener. So thank you very much for listening. And now let's get into the lessons because this is going to be a pretty pretty big episode of lessons that we're going to try and get through and not rush them, but also just try and get through some of the best ones we've had over this journey. So we've learned many lessons from all these interviews. Uh, here's about one or two key lessons from our best episodes and guests and what we think our, are our most important coaching tips to help you improve and we can kind of tell what the best episodes are by the ones that are most downloaded so we can see which which headlines people want to learn more information about and which guests people really love so uh, i'm going to start with probably the godfather of, of coaching and training and and someone we love joe Friel. we interviewed joe Friel, the founder of training peaks um the main app we use and my favorite lesson from him was that age groupers are just training too hard and we talk a lot, a lot about training hard training easy but he just basically said uh, back it off you know and, and he gets a lot of his age groupers to train one high intensity session a week and that's it you know for a lot of triathletes that would be blasphemy and the rest is easy but he just wants athletes to be able to recover and have a good lifestyle yeah and uh i know we want to uh not harp on too many individual podcasts here and so we want to make sure we get through i think we've got about 30 or 40 lined up comments on it but yeah um there's no doubt about it. Uh, the motivated athlete is is a hard one to coach because they just want to do more and they think more is always going to be better. Um, but, you know, our motto is train smarter to race faster. And that is one of the things that he pushes is, you know, recover well, train hard, um, but don't train hard all the time. Perfect. Louise Burke, one of our favorite guests and one of our most listened to episodes, Professor Louise Burke, uh, nutritionist. And we're really excited to say that we've got her on for early 2024 again, which is going to be really exciting. 
Um, and my lesson from her was uh, we kind of do our diet backwards. You know, we, we just kind of, we have no protein throughout the day and we all have a big cow, as she put it, uh, on the table at nighttime. And uh, I just love that, that simplified concept of um, start, you know, think, don't, just, don't just do the traditional Western diet of cereal in the morning, something random for lunch, and then a whole bunch of protein and meat at night. You know, you really want to spread your day out evenly between the carbs, fats, and proteins that you need. What did you take from Louise Burke? Yep, that she absolutely predicted what I do and have done for many years. And um, it just keeps keeps reinforcing and reemphasizes how much better I would be if I actually um, looked at my diet and, and took the advice. Um, and I you know, absolutely try to, to, to make changes to make to make that happen and and her her balance of just not being extreme either way too much or too little I just found um, just so uh, uh, refreshing and and it's amazing how the people who are the highest experts in their field have got a really good way of making it simple and Mm. I just it it just was uncomplicated and stop doing that style of eating and just try to be more balanced and you'll probably find that you'll have more energy and with more energy comes more um, ability to train the way you want to. Yeah, I'll count you in in that uh, category as well, Dad. Your ability to explain concepts um, in a simple way is what really helps athletes understand what they need to do. One of the next guests that we loved interviewing was pro triathlete Emma Jeffcoat. She came on to talk a lot about her journey uh, through injury as well a lot, but one of the key things was understanding fueling properly and she said that she's battled with weight throughout her career and wanting to try and cut weight to try and, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, a myth and a misconception that um, just going lighter will make you go faster all the time. Obviously, it's, it is true that um, a better watts per kilo would improve you going faster, but it's not true for all athletes. And her big lesson was that her deciding to fuel properly for her days and for her training far outweighed her performance than trying to cut calories to lean up to get a better watts per kilo. I've got a lot of examples of athletes who get too lean and lose a lot of their energy uh, because they're not fueling properly. And of course, what we just said previously with Louise Burke was um, if your performance basically will suck if you if you don't have the strength and the energy to train and race properly. So a question I always ask people when I'm interviewing them for pr- prospective clients to join our coaching group is what's your optimal weight that you want to achieve and the majority of people say oh, I'm too heavy I want to be a lot lighter but my question that's not what my question is my question is in your experience what weight do you perform best at and that's where you should be targeting mm, spot on and Christian Blumenfeld was another great example of that and we didn't interview his coach on this but uh, he's um, you know really clearly said uh, in, in interviews that Christian is someone that performs much better a few kilos heavier than most people would expect, you know, and they have leaned him up before and they've leaned him up, you know, six kilos lighter than what he currently races at. And they just said his numbers plummeted. They, he just could not perform as well. And he's someone that looks like a quote unquote bulkier athlete. And you, when you first look at him, you, you think he's too heavy for triathlon and long distance triathlon, but um, they just say his strength, his numbers are far better when he's got that uh, quote unquote weight on. And so, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting subject and one that, doesn't get talked about heaps, but they're two awesome examples of, you know, lighter doesn't necessarily automatically equal better. The image of an athlete One, that looks overweight too, George, is, is a worry to me. Um, you know, people are determining the, the fitness levels by looking at someone. And I, I just don't hmm. think that's fair. And and you, you should be looking at, at their um, performance first and then <laughs> looking at, oh, what, what does a person who can perform like, Christian can look like and what does a person who who looks like Gustav what does he perform like and they're two completely different looking athletes um you know we, we talk about Jakob Ingebrigtsen a lot you know look at him compared to other athletes you know what do they all look like is is really not an indicator of how they're going to perform yeah. uh, the performance is, is clear that's the thing we should be looking at and then maybe have a look at you know what what their somatotype looks like yeah, yeah, spot on. Um, we're going to sprinkle in some um, key coaching tips in here as well and not just talk about our best um, lessons from guests because we kind of looked at some of our top episodes and um, there's some clear episodes that were winners and there's some clear lessons in there that we just think are so important throughout the journey that if you can just pick up a bunch of these and do these properly, you will train smarter, race faster, you will improve. And one of them is, um, for me, I think, 
having really clear and well-defined seasons and off-seasons. So we speak a lot about, and now it is so well-known about us that, one, you need ample time to prepare for a race, um, and you need to really prepare that season properly, um, and then you need a really clear off-season. But, this is the big but, so you cannot take that lesson on its own, it's you cannot undo the hard work that you do. And Too many people are so too hardcore on and off. You know, they, they train right up to a race, and then they have complete off-period. And a clear off-season means... You're backing off the volume. You're probably backing off the intensity or race-specific sessions. But there are there is a training structure you need to follow so that you're not undoing all your hard work. And we see athletes go too far one way or the other. They either don't have an off-season and they burn out or they have too much of an off-season and they're constantly just going back and forth between getting fit and not getting fit and they're not actually improving year on year. The classic example I can use is based on myself. And it wasn't me wanting to have an off-season. It was having back surgery where I was forced to have 10 weeks off. and Normally, people say 10 weeks off, you have the equivalent 10 weeks to get back. So that's a 20-week period. So it's nearly half a year. Well, I'm I'm over half a year now post-back operation, and I'm still not near where I was the week before my operation, and that's 26 weeks. And so that's an example of a forced rest period of 10 weeks of pretty much no no training whatsoever. And the detraining, the deload that happened uh, to my fitness, my aerobic capacity, my fitness um, was, out, was astronomically, outstandingly poor. I, I really have had trouble and have had to work really hard to, to get my fitness back. And I've been quite determined, as you know, to, to try to train as well as I possibly can. But it is taking a long time. And that's the thing we're trying to prevent everybody who's who's got themselves a really good fitness level and then just takes too many weeks off with 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 that f- idea that you know I deserve an off season which is doing nothing and and that's the thing we're trying to prevent is just just maintain have enjoyment in your training and maintain maintain some training uh, it doesn't have to be totally structured but but I guarantee the people who say to me oh, I just, just want to have maybe two or three months where I'll just do my own thing they come back to our program 50 or 60% worse off than when they left. So they now take six more weeks to get back to where they were before, and that's without actually improving again. So it's really detrimental mentally and physically to, to, to just do it too extreme. Yeah, I can tell you I had the experience this year. I spent most of the year off the bike, and that was a um, conscious choice, and I knew the price I would have to pay for that. And I was explaining to you that I you know, I jump back on the bike and the first session just sucks. And then that next six weeks, you just know it sucks because you know what you can do and you're just nowhere near that. And it's just so humbling and you just have to get through and suffer through each session, trying to get yourself back to that level that you you know you're at. And, and six weeks is even conservative, but it takes longer. But I just find you because you start to cross a threshold where you start to get back to your normal self and find your legs again a little bit. But to get back to that peak form you work so hard for, it, it's so frustrating in those those first few weeks to be doing sessions and numbers that you are just so far below what you you know you're capable of, and it, it is a sucky feeling. And look, it happens sometimes, but the more you can avoid that, uh, probably the better. We're not really talking, George, about the people who have been sick or injured here. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about people's conscious decision to just take chunks of time away from and. and that might be a fair and reasonable thing to do because you are mentally burned out or physically burned out. And that could be a good reason. That's as good a reason as being sick or injured. But the people who are just actually trying to to rest uh, because they feel like doing that, uh, they're the people we're trying to encourage to not do nothing. That's the point yep. we're making. Yeah. Next one is we uh, interviewed, speaking of the Norwegians, before we interviewed the founder of the basically the Norwegian triathlon program and the person responsible for training all these gun triathlon Norwegians coming through like Gustav and Christian. Um, and we had a great interview with him. It was great to get an insight and we've spoken about the Norwegians inf- too many times on this podcast, to be honest, but we just love it. Um, but his, one of his biggest lessons was um, intensity control. Obviously, that's what the Norwegians are known for, but then finding those methods that they're known for, but making sure it's applicable to you. So they're really famous for their altitude camps, um, but you can't just go and do an altitude camp. And this was a huge eye for me because I just assumed that you go train at altitude camp, you're going to get a benefit because of the thin air. You know, just logically to me, it made sense that you go up there, you train, your body responds really well. And they, he made a really clear point that Christian doesn't respond well, or Gusta, one of them, doesn't respond well 
to VO2 max training up there. In fact, they would go a bit backwards. You know, they need when they're up there, they need to do a lot more less intensity and they need to keep all their VO2 max intensity down. Whereas the other one, I can't remember who was who, um, was the opposite. You know, they were fine with VO2 max up there and didn't need to worry about just doing zone two. So um, just because something might work, you know, a specific training method out there, you need to make sure it's appropriate to you, appropriate to your program and your goals, and it's going to actually work for you. Yeah, and that's spot on because it's very individual and uh, going to altitude doesn't necessarily give the best outcome. You can go to altitude and train as hard as you possibly can. And if you're one of those people who doesn't respond to that, you know, the, the air is thinner. It's harder to breathe. It's harder to train with intensity. It's harder to perform at altitude. That's why you're there because mm. you're trying to reproduce hemoglobin at a higher level by training yeah. uh, with, with limited oxygen and and yeah. if you train too hard there, you could actually end up in a hole. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just, um, I totally agree. And it, obviously it seemed obvious that you can't train too hard, but even just their standard, you know, VO2 max training and VO2 max is the wrong word because it sounds like they're maxing out, but just that intensity above that LT2 threshold was still too much. So that was fascinating. Um, we had a great chat with uh, Andy Blow from Precision Hydration. It's probably a company that's taking over the triathlon world in terms of um, hydration, one of the most competitive companies out there. Uh, and my biggest learning from that was understanding total sweat loss volume, so the amount of fluid you're losing, and versus the salt concentration in that sweat. So that was eye-opening for me that you could be a low um, sweater, but salt might be really high, or you could be a high sweater. You know, you lose a lot of fluid and but you, and that's also high, or you could lose a lot of fluid, but you're not losing that much salt. And so all those things depict actually how much fluid replacement you need and how much salt replacement you need. As endurance athletes, we really need to understand how we cope with heat and cooler temperatures. Uh, and there's so many examples of training benefits from training uh, with no fans on in particular in an indoor training session uh, and going into saunas uh, and and how does your body respond to, to these changes in conditions when you may be training in really cool climates and go to your A race that happens to be in a really hot environment? And the example classically would be uh, the Kona Ironman uh, where the humidity and heat is, is you know, quite exceptional on race day. And if you haven't prepared your body accordingly, you can't do the numbers that you've been doing at home um, because you haven't understood how your body reacts to the heat and obviously sweat loss and salt salt losses so um so this is this is almost as important as the training sessions i i think because if you don't get this right doesn't matter how fit you are you actually will not be able to perform on the day yeah spot on the next one we want to talk about is probably one of my favorite conversations i've ever had not just on the podcast but just in life and uh, that was Lockie morton and we got to speak to him for two and a half hours on the podcast he was very generous with his time and he's a bit of an enigma in the cycling world he's just a fascinating character he's just done some remarkable things what what did you take from Lockie? I just thought he's. I've watched a lot of his videos on YouTube. Uh, we we uh, drove back from the the Melbourne to Warney Classic with him in our car for for three hours. Uh, uh, one of those race days, we had him as a guest. I just thought he's a a really intriguing personality, and uh, I loved his journey uh, that he's been on through his cycling career, and it's based around his love of riding, and that came through so much more than his competitiveness. Yes, he's a very talented uh, uh, bike rider who has achieved a lot of success. But first and foremost, he must enjoy what he's doing. Otherwise, he can't actually do the things that he's wanting to achieve. And I think that's the lesson I learned. You've got to love what you're doing enough. Um, and example today, just out there training and the heavens opened up in the you know a summer's day and I started laughing thinking it's absolutely bucketing on me here and I'm still actually got a smile on my face going this is great if it had been raining when I started I would never have gone out but that was an example of I just love out there training and and he really brought that home to me and reminded me of why we do it yeah spot on I, I couldn't summarize that any better I just think he was able to portray the lesson that enjoyment is more important than anything else i say that with a little bit, a bit of asterisks which doesn't really make sense but for him it was more important than his pro career you know he was just he was not happy in his pro career and if he's willing to give that up to make sure that he's enjoying it and enjoying it doesn't mean this is the asterisks enjoyment doesn't mean you're having fun 100 percent of the time exactly your example with the rain you know it's obviously not fun riding in the rain but you can find enjoyment in that in that moment and you can 
find enjoyment in the suffering of training. You know, training is hard. It's not when you're in the middle of a VO2 set when it's you're doing a three-minute effort and you, you want to vomit. You wouldn't say that's enjoyable necessarily at the time, but the enjoyment comes from the after after effect and the feeling you get and the um, satisfaction you get because you push yourself. So that's when I say enjoyment is more important than anything else. That's what I mean. It's that you're enjoying the whole experience, not necessarily you're enjoying every single part of the entire process. I think the enjoyment also comes, Jordan, in those hard sessions from the fact that you know you're improving. That is so enjoyable to know that if I do this today, in the next three weeks, I'm going to be a better athlete. And that's the enjoyable part. Yeah. The next lesson is a bit of a coaching lesson you wanted to touch on. It's something that's just a repeated theme that you think is so important between for an athlete to know about a coach. I think trusting the process is is an underrated phrase um, because people say that but they still want to do their own version and I'm forever asking the question to my athletes if you strayed from from what we agreed on to to do in this block of training or in this day or in this one session in this week you've got to you've got to wear the consequences of the fact that you may not be able to front up two three four five days later to actually perform the way you want to and that comes back to trusting the process if i just do a bit more i'll get fitter quicker and mm. and that just doesn't happen all the time um and so you know trusting the process means absolutely being 100 percent on board with with what you and your coach have decided and if you change that in any day or or week that's okay as long as you can cope with the consequences of poor outcome or or the risk that you've done too many hours or too much climbing on a bike or too much hard training when you should have been actually recovering. Or during this this holiday period we're talking about right now, this is the key time where people are straying from from their routine and doing, you know, extras by three times more than they would normally. So we always had that rule of, you know, adding five or ten percent over a progressive period, but people are, you know, adding fifty percent. Uh, averaging 200 kilometers on a bike on an average week to doing five or 600. And the festive 500 that Strava do is one of those things that really gets up my nose. Um, you know, it, let's just go from 200k a week to 500 plus and, and see what happens to my Can you fitness explain what level. the festive 500 is for those that don't know what it is? <laughs> well, the festive 500 is something invented by Strava to see who could do the most kilometers or really, it was trying to get people to ride the bike. That Their their goal was their goal was um, admirable. It was trying to, get, trying to get people to ride more. Um, but well, people, if I really looked at it, I think their goal was marketing. But <laughs> That's right. But, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah so I'm, I'm so. being generous um, and... and and I think, you know, people, as always, will take things to the extreme. And, you know, we had guys not only doing 500K for the week, but doing 2,500K for the week, doing 500K a day to, to get the title of doing the most kilometers in that seven days. And people around the world were hiding their sessions till one minute before 12 and uploading it on Strava so that no one could do more kilometers than they did that day. That's how serious it got. Um, and, and it, and it, put people in such a hole from being so fatigued for doing way too much training. It was a classic example of, yeah, let's do this and see how you go in the next month. Yeah, the next month is the worst you've ever performed because you did 2,000 kilometers in one week and you have not still recovered from it. And yet you had an A race that was four weeks later and you, you thought that was a good idea. And your friend Boyd crashed his bike because he was so exhausted trying to max out kilometers. Yeah, and you know, he actually nearly died because he was on a bike track just trying to clock up a few more kilometers to, to make sure he'd done 250 for the day. And some, some pedestrians were coming the other way and he and he just lost concentration, put his front wheel off the concrete path onto the dirt, flipped over his bike and sent his handlebars through his inside of his leg, which just missed his main artery in his leg he could have bled to death there and then um and you know that was quite a serious injury he had and he didn't end up riding his bike for six or seven weeks after that that was an example of you know just delirious uh, athlete with showing so much fatigue that they weren't thinking properly 
yeah, I guess the, the, coming back to the main point of your lesson is that, you know, trusting the process that includes this holiday period, but just overall, just trusting the process and know that, yeah, if you're trying to cheat your way to get more Ks in our training, it's not going to happen. And, and it's just that lesson could be more reiterated by more experts. The next one is a combined lesson with what we say often. And we actually had Ken Ballhouse, expert bike fitter on the podcast. He's one of the most sought after bike fitters in the world right now amongst pro athletes for his technology around um, certain bars and mechanics and uh, aerodynamic improvements. Um, but it's, the lesson is you've got free speed that you, that you can get. You know, your position is so much on the bike and go get it. Yep. It's just not free speed, but fatigue uh, from being in a poor position and then being more comfortable uh, creates less fatigue. So you can, you can perform at a higher level for longer. Uh, as a triathlete, you could actually run off the bike by being more comfortable on the bike. Um, as a cyclist, you know, you can hold hold your form for longer, hold higher power in a, in a cycling race or a time trial. Um, but a- absolutely, you can be faster if you get yourself set up properly on a bike. So, you know, it's great to get a, a brand new bike or upgrade your bike uh, from, from what you've been previously riding. And you might not have had a bike fit for five or six years. You know, your body shape changes as you grow. Um, if you're a young 20-year-old, you're, you're, you could be still in a growth spurt, so you could actually get taller. So the position you get fitted in at 20 might not be the same or shouldn't be the same as when you're 24. Or, and the same thing as you're a 40-year-old to a 60-year-old, you know, the body somehow shrinks. So you should be you should be actually getting, you know, continually checked to see if you're in the right position. And, and if you're getting uncomfortable or getting some pain, um, you know, or some injury, some knee injuries because your cleats are incorrectly uh, positioned or, you know, the crank length's too long for your size, and the seat's too high or too low, you're sitting too far back or too far forward, you're extending your hands out too far, um, your head stem's too long or too short. There's so many things you can do to get more comfortable and get uh, more power um, and to be in a better position to generate more power, which in turn will make you able to ride the bike faster. And that's the goal. Yeah, no, I love that. That's a great one. Taryn Richardson from the Triathlon Nutrition Academy. We've had her on a couple of times. Um, one of my biggest lessons and takeaways from her is just how important variety is in our foods on a day-to-day basis. It's just just really highlighted how we all eat the same sort of foods most of the time and it's not a quite not a wide variety. And I thought about that with my own diet and went, oh, well, that's actually true. I think I eat very well, but it's just kind of the same foods all the time and you really need to mix it up your whole day and week with with a variety of foods to get all the right nutrients vitamins minerals macronutrients micronutrients and that was a really big tip for me what did you take from her yeah i'd love the color on your plate um having as, as at least five vegetables i think that was really helpful to me um i also was really um keen on her idea that uh if you're on a recovery day you don't need to to eat as much if you're in a hard endurance day you need to you need to supply more more nutrition to your body um so we just tend to eat the same each day and i think that was a great point she made we don't we shouldn't and um it's important that we we change that mindset to you know if i'm having an easy day or uh, i just need to eat according to the energy that i'm going to expend the next guest lesson was a guy who I can't wait to see how he goes at the Nationals this year. Um, the story of perseverance, Jimmy Whelan. Boy, that was an awesome story with such a happy ending this year when it really looked like he, he might not get a happy ending. Yeah, he uh, had lost his contract with EF Education and uh, was looking for an, a new contract uh, to be continuing as a professional bike rider. And we really um, tried to get behind his... his uh, challenge of trying to find a a team to ride with and and we spent a lot of time with him to try and promote um him as a rider and the value that he could give to a team and it came down it was about this time last year um it came down to you know it was was, it was lester it was was five months ago yeah five months ago um yeah and it came down to you know just just almost running out of time to Mm -hmm. to get a contract and and then he was thrown a lifeline and uh, I don't know what what got him that contract, but it could have been a combination of many things, like we say about everything. Mm. Um, but the fact that he got that and he could not have been happier and his life would have been so much different had he not got that contract. But uh, he spent the rest of the year training and racing really well and, um, and he's in great form right now. And uh, for those who don't know, the Australian Road Championships is on next week here at Buninyong and in Ballarat in Victoria. And uh, most of the other... Uh, national jersey road championships are 
uh, in the middle of July for every other country in the Northern Hemisphere, but for Australia, it's January. And, you know, the coveted green and gold jersey um, is something that every Australian rider wants to wear. Obviously, every every rider from every country would love to wear that and represent that uh, in all the uh, world tour races uh, that go on throughout the year. But um, I, I can't wait to see how Jimmy goes in this race. He's, uh, he's looking like he's got some good form and he did ride a good race last year, only mm-hmm. to be, to be uh, overrun by Luke Plapp at the end. Um, so it's going to be a great race next week. Looking forward to it. And I love the fact that Jimmy got, got another contract. Yeah, and you touched on the story there, but basically he was doing everything he could to get into a pro team and he was living overseas. And when we were speaking to him, he, he basically had a month left. He said, till I run out of funds and I have to give up the dream. And he said, I just don't want to do that. And he was just leaving no stone unturned and, and he got it. So just a great story of persevering right until the last second. He was willing to go right into the last second, which I just absolutely love. Um, one of our most popular episodes on YouTube um, was our episode with Dr. Stephen Siler. And it's no wonder why he's just a mastermind for coaching ethos and principles. And we just love what he's all about and we're just so aligned with his coaching principles and um yeah for for us the big lesson was just simplify the program you know just simplify it back and and keep it simple and and you you can easily succeed that way yeah and if you don't for those who don't remember our interview with him like he is kind of the guru of the 80 20 rule where you know and that really simplified things doesn't we we always talk about this five or six zone system we use zone one recovery zone two you know, some endurance zone three, tempo zone four, threshold zone five, VO2 and zone six is anaerobic. So that is quite a complicated way to train, but he's basically simplified it. And as I said earlier, all these experts can make it so easy to understand. So 20% of your time should be spent with some intensity and 80% of the time should be spent trying to build your endurance capacity. And if you base that around, you know, how often you train, um, the actual time you, you spend out there training and the intensity that's the simple three things you should be thinking about and i just think you know if we all followed that that system which is what we base our program around um then we'll get some really good improvement in our performance brendan tricky johnson one of australia's best off-road cyclists australian mountain bike champion uh, just went and did the lifetime grand prix series the gravel series over in america this year we interviewed him a few weeks ago and uh, yeah, a great lesson, and he got his program quite wrong, and it had disastrous effects on his on his year. And then some slight adjustments completely turned it around. And I think there's a really key lesson for athletes in that. Yeah, and it it's an example of someone at at world tour level who is also making some mistakes on 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 racing and training. And so, as as us age groupers, we shouldn't get too. Uh, hard on down on ourselves about uh poor performance because it happens to even the best you know pogachar had a poor tour de france in his by his standards um so that's the that's someone at the highest level as a bike rider um you know uh gustav eden who won kona has had the worst season for a variety of reasons since he won that race he hasn't actually done much since he won the world title ironman they're examples of of people who are professionally doing a sport getting it wrong, and and this is not a criticism of them. It's just a an awareness that everybody needs to be a little bit kinder to themselves and and think think long and hard about what they're going to do each day, so that they don't make mistakes in training too hard or too easy or or going down the wrong track or getting things completely askew so that their performance is actually worse than than it is better and so um you know my message is to to keep uh to keep measuring how you think you're going and if you're not happy with it change it and talk to your coach about that and and you know if you think you've got ideas that that you that you think would help then you know talk about those things don't just keep doing the same thing um even though it's going disastrously you, you need to change things up to to get a better outcome yeah it's um it's a great lesson for just a minor adjustment can make all the difference and you you speak about this a lot as well is being able to objectively understand your your situation because he was kind of asking that question i love this he was going i i should be super fit what is going on and he just needed a bit more rest he just needed a bit more freshening up once that happened his fitness was able to be to show through and he goes i was right i was fit as fit as i thought but those doubts can creep in when the results aren't there and so yeah just those minor adjustments to to figure out what's actually going on and you might have the same thing if you are doing some tests or going my numbers say one thing but my results are saying something else what what do we need to change here to get this right and that's a really important uh, conversation to have with your coach 
The next uh, almost favorite interview of the year um, was our interview with Rachel Boarding, one of our athletes who uh, came onto the podcast graciously and really went to detail about her experience at the Ultra Trail Mont Blanc, the World Championships at Ultra Trail. Um, she took her 42 hours uh, in, with insane, insane elevation, uphill running and downhill running. And this, the story was epic of the actual race, but the preparation was even more epic. Yeah, and it's another example of someone picking an incredibly hard challenge, and I'm up for that. But I'm not up for people who do that, pick that hard challenge, and then don't do anything about the preparation properly. And that's the thing that I loved about Rachel. She just did the preparation, and she implemented it into her, her everyday schedule so work her social life and her training she mixed them all beautifully she, she managed to to you know set up a situation where she was either riding or running to work every day regardless of the weather and and that to me was you know showed absolute commitment and dedication to her preparation and that's the part I loved and and come race day she reaped the rewards no matter how hard it got it, it couldn't have been any harder than the training she was doing a really enjoyable interview we had was with Kel O'Brien, uh, current pro rider for Jaco Alula, and we just enjoyed this conversation because it always reminds me of something you talk about, and you talk about the importance of your character and you know, really trying to be a good and kind person, and that will take you further in life and in your results as well, and he just showed that his attitude and enthusiasm it just makes such a difference in the way he's able to train and race and, and get some great success at world tour level so far. And his willingness to learn off others. And that's the thing. Even at my age at 65, I can't wait to learn something today about, you know, something that's going to contribute to me being a better human being. And I, that, that was such an eye-opener to listen to Cal talk about, you know, we were talking about his first uh, experiences at the uh, Spring Classics. And he just loves the Spring Classics. Growing up in Australia, we watch the Spring Classics and he's done the same. And he just could not he was like a sponge he was soaking up all the advice he was getting from the pro riders around him and once once people know that someone is actually listening and taking on your advice people are more willing to give you more advice um that you know and and he was just that he he exudes that enthusiastic rider who just wants to learn and become better and i yeah his attitude was brilliant the next uh, interview guest that's very memorable for us for different reasons because it's one of the most emotional interviews we've probably done. That was with uh, my cousin and your niece, in Shauna Donnelly. And she, that, that was an interview we did with her because she had a pretty crazy cancer journey um, where she came back from very serious stage four cancer and made a full recovery. And she was a runner beforehand. She really wasn't sure if she's going to be able to run again and then got to the point where she was doing better 10K times than pre-cancer. And that whole journey was super emotional. But for me, it was the the process between you and her, coach and athlete, where the smallest, tiniest, most incremental margin was what you were aiming for. And that was okay. And the patience it took for that, I just, I think if anyone wants to learn patience about trying to get fitter faster, go listen to this episode because her goals from when she started back from scratch, when she was completely you know, on her deathbed after cancer um, and her, her muscles and body just wouldn't work, her goal was to walk 10 meters a day. You know, that was where she was starting from. To build from that you know, each day, potentially going 10 more meters at a time, building that up to running 10K PBs, that is just an incredible lesson for me. Yeah, talk about uh, when we... I mean, I get emotional thinking about that one, but for sure... The journey is so much more important than the destination, and that, that could not be more emphasised in in that story with her. Was you know each day, each week, each month, she just improved slightly, and and they were victories. They were they were the things that got her up again the next day. Because look how far I've gone. I've doubled the distance I did last week from 100 metres to 200 metres, and and those small tiny marginal gains uh, are, are what was driving her and you know she was a she was a, a really solid athlete as a as a uh, schoolgirl you know in in one of the top top uh, college athletics she won you know the 1500 Olympic Park in went in a local you know APS uh, system which is you know equivalent to anywhere in the world where you've got the best runners lining up and you know that's the talent she had and to be back at square one uh, you know, through what she'd experienced um, and her determination to to try to be as fit and healthy as she can, that, that to me was uh, an incredible story. 
talking about running, the balanced runner we had on, and I just really liked how he really refuses to look at the body um, in isolation, and you look at everything as a whole. So if someone's got some some sort of injury popping up or flare up, you know, he's not looking at that area and just going, oh, you need to fix that. He's looking at the whole body and going, what's happening in all the mechanics that we're trying to fix and trying to look at and trying to improve on. And I just think that's a really important point for everyone to, you know, if you've got a sore foot or sore calf or something, um, you know, that's generally not the only problem here. There's there's something else going on. And I really like that concept of the looking at the body mechanics as a whole. Yeah, and I, I think, Dr. Jordan Moncrief could be brought into this one as well. And and that's the big thing that he really pushes is the body is is should be looked at as in its entirety and everything should be functioning together. Um, you can't just develop really great biceps um, you know, in isolation. You need you need to have a strong back to, to you know to be able to to be able to make the biceps function properly a lot better than they are um you know you need to have good core um and and all the muscles will work in unison better if they're if they're kind of communicating to each other and i think that's what the, you know, that's what the balance runner was actually talking about was was getting the efficiency part of your running um and everybody's running style is different you know there is not one right way to run believe me there isn't it's what suits your biomechanics your structure your bones and your muscles and if you can get that to be as efficient as possible, you will be able to run faster with less effort. Talk about efficiency. We've had exercise physiologist Ryan Warren on a few times and they're just great in-depth interviews. They're talking about uh, a lot about efficiency and economy and they're kind of these expert topics. But one of the main things that stood out for me was not around that, it was more around strength and plyometric training. And he just really spoke about the value of some easy-to-do exercises and plyometric training for runners and triathletes and especially the ageing triathlete you know it's just something we we go more and more away from the, the younger we are the more sprinting we do the more change of direction stuff we do the potentially the more sport we play and we go away from that and just his tip on getting that back in, including your programming warm-ups or a couple of times a week i think is so valuable and um i've seen some great older athletes that still do sprinting as part of their program as 60 plus year olds and they obviously safely have built up for that and have kept that consistency which has allowed them to do it um and it's just awesome to see yeah, that that uh, jumping up and down action, that's really what we're talking about, is getting your muscles and bones to stay strong. At, at 20, they're, they're bulletproof. You know, 30, they start to get a little bit sore and tighter. At 40, 50, 60, it, it really deteriorates very quickly. And if, if you can keep that as part of your, your routine where you're actually uh, – especially if you're desk bound in your job, um, you need to be getting your bones to be having some sort of uh, resistance during the day. And, and whether that's walking or, or skipping or jumping up and down from box to the ground, you know, that's what plyometrics is, getting, getting the bones and muscles to be awake and not be in a slumber. And, and that is something that will keep you strong and healthy for all, into your 60s, 70s and 80s. Yeah. We've used this podcast before, Dad, as a bit of accountability, especially post-back surgery. Um, you did a great job of just you know, opening up on that journey for the listener. And we had a lot of people write in and say that they really appreciated that because it you know, shows a, a much more vulnerable side of trying to come from scratch. And I reckon that can be 2024 for you as well. You've often said on this podcast that, you know, it's an area that you haven't paid attention to. Um, and we both wanted to um, develop more. So I think that's going to be our challenge for 2024 is keep listeners updated on that progress and how much it, it benefits us. Absolutely. And I'm the first person to put my hand up and I'm, and I'm really good at giving advice, but not so good at actually implementing <laughs> some of the time. So, so that is an area that, that I need to really work on and I'm determined to, to make sure that I have lots of areas of arthritis already in my body at the moment. And if I can slow that process down, and that's what plyometrics is, it is going to slow down uh, that onset of you know, the inevitable arthritis that you know, the body will have some measure, measurement in as you get to 70, 80, 90 years of age. And for the, most of the listeners aren't in that category, but you don't want to experience that uh, if you do the right things early on and keep that as part of your daily routine. And that it shouldn't sound too harsh on you. Most people that know you personally know that your discipline around training is unparalleled and unmatched um, no matter what age you've been. So it's, it's not about that, but there's always areas to improve. And last guest on the running factor um, was our, our special shoe specialist, Mitch Lorcan from the running company. Uh, this lesson, I just think, I just tell everyone now, I just say, well, Mitch, 
his biggest principle is that most people are wearing shoes too small and it's having a major impact on their ability to run well. And most people, and it's not a black and white rule, but he's, you know, he says majority of people uh, could afford to go a size or a size and a half up and watch the difference it makes for injury prevention and running performance. That's a great tip, wasn't it? And uh, it's one that I hadn't even considered. And, uh, and then when I thought about it, you know, that is something that I also did wrong. Um, you know, people are getting toenails disappearing because their their toes are crunched up against the end of their shoe, especially when you're doing trail running where you've got lots of uphill and downhill. And, um, and you know, for those guys who are running on the track, you know, you're really, really intensity of your running action is really forcing your foot um, to, jam, <laughs> yeah. to jam up against the front of your, your shoe. So, so having the right amount of room in your shoe can prevent a lot of issues. One of our most popular episodes for the year uh, was who would win out of a VO2 max space program versus a zone two program because we've seen incredible uh, improvements in both. And now the answer is um, is very interesting and very non-surprising in the fact that the first thing you say is, well, it's a mix of both. But we had a very anecdotal, non-scientific lab-tested experiment with, <laughs> with two of us who one did more zone two base and one did a, um, more just VO2 base because they didn't have time for zone two and both had incredible improvements. Um, but that you can't draw any crazy conclusions from that. Uh, but we just want to make the point that a mix of both is going to give you the outcome. But we, the more point was that if you just did a VO2 max program because you're short on training, you'll still get great benefit from that. And if for some reason you just want to do some zone two training and you, you want to have some time off some real high intensity, you will get great benefit from that. And our point is we have athletes in both camps getting great improvements and doing PBs from both. And look, it's determined by what your actual event is as well. Um, you know, if you want to improve your ceiling and your capacity to be a faster, stronger, um, more improved athlete, then certainly VO2 is going to contribute to that. Um, if your event doesn't require uh, you to, to lift your ceiling, then more zone two is going to be more beneficial to you. So, you know, the, the measuring of which is going to be more beneficial is it's got so many uh, asterisk to it. But yeah, it was an interesting uh, experiment, um, even though uh, we knew that, you know, basically 80-20, you need a mixture of, you know, VO2 and zone two is the way to go anyway. So um, doing more VO2, did it, did it make that person better? Probably slightly, but it was just marginal. Yeah. Um, a really cool tip from Dylan Johnson, a guy we really love and who's got a great profile online with um, great science-backed videos. Uh, my my favorite thing about his tip was strength training is not a one percenter. Stop calling it a one percenter. You know, he calls it a major percenter. And I think that's, you know, we, we just spoke about this a couple of minutes ago on, on the importance of it. But yeah, that's, a, that's just a, a big reminder to everyone. Yeah, and uh, I still get a lot of people saying, you know, I want to do strength training in my program. Is that okay? And and it's as if they're asking that we don't think it should be part of your program. It, it should be everything you do should be based around how strong your your and robust your body can be to enable it to withstand the the requirements of your event, no matter what event that is. The thing that we push is that you can't just be strong; you have to be fit from and be specific in your event. So. It can't can't be strength training if you're if if you're a, a a weightlifter. Strength training is the dominant part of that uh, sport. If you're an endurance athlete, strength is important, but your endurance is more important. So it has to be a part of your your endurance yeah. program. So so that's the thing that we're trying to get the percentages right, and and it's certainly not one percent. It's you know, the stronger and, and more robust you are as an athlete for your chosen sport, the the more efficient you will be and your performances will replicate that. And it's also a conversation around when to include it in the program. A beginner triathlete needs to learn how to swim, bike and run, you know, because that's the sport. Um, and so they're pro we're probably not going to prioritize putting a strength program in there straight away. But then when you have an athlete who's got a fair bit of experience, got a bit of fair bit of training under their belt, can handle the load, can handle the frequency, can handle the intensity, they're going to be able to fit a strength training program in without detracting from their program too much or at a detrimental level. I was just going to add one more thing. If you've, if you've got a strength program and, and you've got a, uh, and you've just started a new triathlon program or marathon endurance program and your, your fatigue levels are too high, then you have to reduce something so that you can actually continue to improve. And so, you know, 
you've got to identify what is the key component of the event you're in. And if the event you're in is based around strength, then then drop some other things and keep the strength going. But if, if the com- key component is endurance, then you need to reduce the strength work so that you can get through the program first and then implement more overload with the strength as your body can adapt to the program. We had a great conversation with Drs. Tuzel and Amy Tuzel and Huguenin about stress fractures, stress fracture prevention and stress fracture um, rehab. And that's because stress fractures are quite common among the age group athlete. And a whole bunch of tips they gave about both those scenarios. But one really simple rule to remember was the 10% rule. And they just said, when you're overloading, pay attention to the 10% rule. Try not to overload your total volume or intensity by more than 10% per session or per week. And that can play a huge role in preventing stress fractures. And interestingly enough, we talked about that with the with the uh, festive five hundred example before. Yeah. Um, that is, you know, you know, people say, "Oh, you know, the risk is is minimal um, if you if you do too much." Well, no, it's not. If you end up with a stress fracture, you will be so angry with yourself for mm-hmm. overdoing it. And those examples we gave earlier in in the podcast are, are leading to this, leading to stress fractures. Uh, you can have a stress fracture that could put you out for six months, and and that is not a position you want to be in when you've you've you know worked so hard to get to a fitness level and just sit there waiting for something to heal and not be able to, to do any training. Then you get a real realization of you know overloading and and just blatantly doing way too much is going to cost you uh, dearly in the long run. Brenton Ford from Effortless Swimming, our go-to guru for swimming tips and technique advice to help you improve. Uh, my favorite tip from him is uh, focus a block of training on one to three things at a time and really improve those one to three things and get them down and then add some things on top of that. What's what's your biggest tip from Brenton? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, swimming is one of those skill acquisitions that, you know, the fitness side of it is so important. But if you get to a maximal fitness level and you don't improve your technique, you'll still swim the same time. And it's one of those few sports that that happens. It's the same with, you know, another example would be golf. If if you just keep swinging poorly, you will still hook the ball. No matter if you train eight hours a day training the wrong swing technique. And this is the same with swimming. You need to improve your technique to enable you to go faster. And of course, you need to be fit in the water. But if you don't concentrate on the technique of the sport, then you will be holding yourself back. And so that is the key for me. Yeah, and I think um, that comes down to the implementation of drills as well. And it's something that we just really force on the athletes is you've got to be doing way more drills in your training sessions, which aren't a part of everyone's program and they should be. And talking about skills, uh, one you're really reiterating and focusing on, especially at the moment, but it's just so important is is learning the bike and learning the skill of pedaling action. Yep. And I think that our most recent podcast was exactly on this topic and um, sounds like a broken record, but if you don't actually learn how to apply pressure evenly in a pedaling action, then there's so many things you're missing out on. Um, And number one is you're you're going to ride slower. Um, And so if you think about that as your main focus, if I pedal better, I will ride faster with the same fitness level. And and that's the thing I'm trying to get across to people. Um, Learn, understand how to pedal properly and if you, if you want to know more about that, go back to that podcast that we've just done and re-listen to it. And, and the tips we give you there about how to engage the correct muscle groups at the correct time will give you a faster uh, bike speed um, with the same fitness level. And one of our most, oh no, our most popular series is how to prepare for a specific event properly. So we've done a whole bunch of episodes on how to prepare for an Ironman properly, prepare for a half Ironman properly, prepare for an Olympic distance properly, a marathon properly. Um, and so in those episodes, we give a whole range of tips. Some are similar for the event and some differences for depending on the event about what your training has to include, what sessions are key for that specific event, how to get race ready, how to execute on race day. So I just want to go through each of those things and maybe just pick out one each of uh, what you think is most important, um, given that the nature of a lot of them are the same. You think about an Ironman, what do you think your biggest tip is? Um, definitely, we would say that it, it is one of the all-time hardest things to do. So understanding how the enormity of that event. But, you know, if you want to do an Ironman, don't sit at a coffee shop and just agree with everybody else saying, I'm going to do this next Ironman. Understand what the requirements are and the endurance training that you need to do. And I think if you understand that and are willing to, like the Rachel Balding example, you'll be fine. But but if you don't want to do the preparation, don't do the event. 
Yeah, I'd tie into that and just say, also look at not just your willingness to do the training, but how does the training actually fit in with your lifestyle? Have you got the hours available in the week? Because some people don't. Some people's work schedules are just so hectic, they physically couldn't fit the training volume required in, or the training volume required to do it properly, which is the whole nature of the series. So yes, you could get away with doing it not properly and just getting through, but that's that tip there. Half Ironman, uh, my biggest tip for that, uh, or my biggest point, is that I think the race-specific sessions, training sessions, are the key in that race. You're getting those race-specific, because it's a really quite a specific zone you want to try and ride, swim, ride, and run in. Um, and so doing those longer race-specific sessions, for me, are the ones we've spoken about on many episodes, are really key. What about you? Yeah, look, unlike the Ironman, where it's more about volume, uh, the Half Ironman is, is, is half the volume of an Ironman. So therefore, we've got the opportunity... Uh, to ride at a, an intensity that's really uncomfortable. That sweet spot, zone three, is so uncomfortable to, to train at and to race at. And that takes very specific training. So I would agree entirely with what you just said. Look, the Ironman is also, you know, every every single sport that we talk about, Ironman, half Ironman, marathon, Olympic distance, you know, has a specific uh, intensity that you need to train at f- that meet the requirements of that session but the half iron man is it's it's not easy and it's not hard and it's that uncomfortable period uh, that you have to train in which i find really hard the olympic distance what's your what's one of your biggest tips around that yeah you know it is it is the next step up isn't it you you need to be really training a lot harder than you would for an iron man and for uh for a half iron man because you're training in that uncomfortable threshold zone because that's what olympic distance is you're swimming at threshold you're riding at threshold and you're running at threshold so it is probably the hardest thing to do i think in all of the triathlons when i'm talking about intensity intensity in the olympic distance is the hardest to get right yeah and i would um say off that in any triathlon event, the running off the bike training is super important, but um, you can afford to get off the bike in a half Ironman or Ironman training program and just do some zone two running. And you can do that frequently and, and it really can be a party program without over fatiguing you. But to become good at the Olympic distance, you need to be able to get off and run at threshold or run just under threshold for that 10K. And that's one, such a hard session to fit in your week because it's fatiguing and it's really tough. So you can't do it too many times. You're going to get too tired. Um, so two, it's hard to train for, but it's the most important to train for because you really need to get that specificity right. So it's a, it's a bit of a tough one there. And then one of our next most popular ones was the marathon, how to prepare for a marathon properly. So we've harped on this all year and I hope that the listener, if you've been listening to episodes all year, you can guess what the tip is, but that'll let you drum roll it out and let us know. <laughs> well, of course, execution is, is everything in the marathon and look, it's everything in every sport, isn't it? Execution. So that's a pretty general thing to say, but if you, if you get the marathon wrong, oh, it's an uncomfortable last 12K, 8K, 5K, even 3K at at the, at the three, four-hour mark to, to actually have to run another 10 or 15 minutes more than you should because you got the execution wrong and didn't pay attention to our biggest tip, which is to try to even split or negative split if possible. And, and that is one of the biggest tips we give to marathon runners is, you know, just understand your ability and, and train and race to that rather than your ambition, which is, you know, 10 minutes faster than you're capable of. Uh, we've spoken a little bit about some of our internet wars we've had online. With um, we, we put some a lot of our content out there online and we get some videos really get some uh, interesting and opinionated responses, which we welcome. I personally welcome. Um, I love these conversations. I love seeing what everyone else has to say. And one video just sparked some hilarious debate online where I spoke about the... Um, uh, the the notion of how important negative splitting is, how much the common average runner or triathlete doesn't do it, how not even the pros do it properly, and it sparked huge debates. Some people were saying, "Everyone knows this. This is basic advice. Like, why are you saying this? Like, everyone know everyone does this, which we just know is so absurd." But then we had people saying the other the other way, so saying, "You're an idiot. Um, that's not the best way to run. Um, you know, that's it's not possible to do that in events. You shouldn't aim for that." So. Within the comment sections, there were people arguing hardcore both ways, which I think is just very funny. But you know, we'll we'll die on this hill, and it's it's something that we will never <laughs> we'll never give up. Yep. The only thing I can say is all the world records around the world are held by negative splits or or even splitting. It's not a yeah. positive split. Yeah. Yeah. So last few here. Um, one really cool interview we did was with um, marathon runner Sarah Klein. And uh, if you don't know her story, she was incorrectly banned for four years, reduced to two. 
um, not for a negative uh, drug testing sample, but because there was a mix-up in the actual testing protocol, um, which she thought, again, we won't go into it, we can listen to the interview, but she thought she was fine to leave, they let her leave, and they slapped her with a four-year ban after saying you weren't supposed to leave the, the testing protocol. Um, and that absolutely destroyed her. Her whole identity was running, she was preparing to make it to the Olympics, um, and then her whole career was taken away from her. And that in- interview I just found incredible where she her identity was taken away from her and she had to find it elsewhere and she went and taught overseas for a couple of years she went completely away from running and then because of that she was able to come back and she was able to find enjoyment in her running again and then she made it back to the world champs which is just such a peak comeback story to get back to that top level again and i thought that was awesome it was back to the Lockie morton principle almost where you know she it was almost she said it's a blessing in disguise that you know her identity was all running and now it's it's more liberating because it's not she loves it so much she does it because she loves it and it's not everything she needs to do i just thought it was one of the best stories i'd ever heard uh, for resilience and um and not um being bitter and twisted uh and and she just exudes uh that fact that she loves running first and foremost and and originally she was running for the wrong reasons and now she found her why um, and she's just a better person because of it uh, and sometimes through adversity uh, you get you know some positive outcomes and this was a classic case of that. Last couple here, Stu McSane was another interview we loved. He's one of Australia's best um, and fastest middle distance runners right now and he has had huge periods of form swings which I, again is just another great lesson for all age groups out there. Yeah, and again, we talked about, you know, I talk about Pogacar's example where, you know, you just don't always win races. Um, and Stewie's been at the top of the tree. He's been, you know, rivaling Inga Britson in races. And, and you know, for a variety of reasons, his form deteriorated uh, so much so that he couldn't even get into some of the Diamond League races. He was actually the pacemaker uh, for the race. And so understand that you won't be at your best all the time and you will will have swings from being in form and being out of form. And, that you know, the timing of that is what you want to get right, don't you? And and so sometimes you, you, you know, Trekkie Johnson's example, um, you know, getting it wrong at the right time, at the wrong time. Um, and, you know, Stewie's another example, you know, and, and – I think that's really important for the listener to understand that, you know, it is a hard thing to get right and, and you can make mistakes. And as long as you learn from those uh, for your next campaign, then, then you've got some value out of it. Understanding training zones is one of the last coaching lessons we wanted to talk about. We spoke about, um, you know, just before <laughs> Sid and Silas saying, don't overcomplicate it, um, you know, just, just keep it quite simple. But we also want to understand what you're trying to achieve in a session and um, understanding what training zones mean and what you're aiming for per session is a really valuable thing you can do to get the most out of your training because one day's training zone targets are completely different to the next day and the goals for the session are, are really different. And once you start to understand that, you get way more value out of your week. Yeah, just I had a great example on my own uh, two days ago where I, because I live in the, in the hills and there is no flat road where I live and I intentionally moved here 35 years ago for that reason because I wanted to get stronger and trying to do a zone two ride when you're on a 10% gradient is not easy but it takes a lot of patience and a lot of um, determination to stay in the right zone and my heart rate was 135 that's the number I wasn't allowed to go over for that session for that two-hour ride and and boy some of the hills I was just creeping up some of the hills you know so badly that you almost felt like you know you're going to stop at one stage and people say well why why do a zone two in that in that particular course and that's a really good question Um, the fact is time restraints prevented me from driving a half an hour away from the hills to go to a flat road and do the session there I still actually wanted to get some strength benefit and you can do that by having good gear ratios on your bike so that you can still spin and keep your heart rate below the threshold and I avoid really really steep hills where my heart rate can't do anything but go above that 135 beats per minute and so I selected a course where I could actually nail the session but looking at the course after I'd done the event you know really proved to me that you can ride any zone anywhere as long as you're willing to pay attention to the data 
on that note, this is the last lesson we want to talk about, and it's it's understanding. You know, it's, it's what you're talking about there is riding properly, and it's one of the biggest uh, things we've seen in our athletes this year is the difference in execution, specifically on the bike, riding the bike properly and riding a course properly and executing the course properly, produces wildly different results um, for no difference in in potentially fitness levels. So the basic principle is can be summarized as this: if you learn how to ride better you will go faster without needing to get any fitter. And that's just not true for anything else. It's just not true for swimming. Swimming is more technical based. Um, and running, it's definitely fitness based. Um, as Obviously, there's there's strength in there. There's uh, running efficiency, etc. Um, but the bike, if you understand execution and course and how to ride a course, you will ride faster without needing to get fitter. Yeah, we talk about a bike fit being free speed. Understanding how to ride courses, how to ride wind, how to ride hills, um, is going to give you free speed if you can if you can learn those lessons in training and then implement it on race day. You will get a faster average speed for the same fitness level. We've said that many times, but uh, people I don't know whether they understand what we just said or or they're refusing to to believe that that's true. But we have proven it with so many examples of, of, of riders that we've taken from who they thought were okay at bike riding, but then when we taught them how to ride this particular style of riding, they are, you know, knocking 10, 15 minutes off a 90K time trial with similar fitness, but just riding the course differently. That's it for this episode of Lessons. We could keep going infinitely, like we said. I feel like we might do this more regularly because we could easily just sit here and come up with another 50 lessons that are really super beneficial and the best way is to keep listening to the episodes. And if you want uh, to get the best tips, then all these episodes are packed with them and you can go back and listen to any of the episodes we've mentioned. But um, I want to finish off with my one of my final lessons from the entire podcast. And it ties in nicely with a theme we've spoken about since day one on the podcast. And that I think was pretty generous from you at the start of the episode to say that um, I... I do all the work behind the scenes and stuff. It's just not true. Um, yes, I prepare the questions for you, but we both do a lot of work in, in preparing what we're going to say and the topics and uh, it does take some preparation. So it's not all on me. And I think a big lesson I've learned from you is consistency and it's taken more than 200 episodes for it to be as drummed into me as it is now. So I can only imagine for the listener what it's like. Um, but it's hard to do the podcast each week. You know, it's a lot of effort. It's a lot of time. The entire um process from um thought of the actual episode to production to editing to posting um takes a lot and there's some weeks where we're really stretched for time and it's hard to fit this this block in around all all the coaching that we want to do and everything involved in the actual business um and it's been really beneficial to have someone there who preaches consistency for us to go no we've made the rule you know we've got to do it every single week no matter how busy we're getting you know it's just got to be a priority and that's just hold us in really good stead and it's crazy how that theme applies just everywhere in the world and that includes training so i just want to finish on that consistency note and go yep that that's just a reminder of out of all the principles that's just the number one thing yep i couldn't have said it any better and uh you know, we've said so much about training consistency, but, you know, even even in our podcasting consistency, our, our viewer audience has grown from, you know, 40, 400, 4,000 to now 30,000. And, and, you know, that's, that's good content. That's, that's good information. But most importantly, it's turning up each week. And that's what consistency is about. We're there reliably every week. Uh, for our for our listeners who've been on board with us for the last however many years this has been three years, they are looking forward to uh, some more information, and that's that's kind of an example of how valuable consistency can be in in just podcasting. So you implement that into any other aspect of your life, and you will start to reap benefits just by being consistent, and that means turning up each day. That's a good way to finish. Thank you, as always, for being a listener, especially a thank you for your help in the 200 episodes. We've celebrated it today and we'll be back with our normal posting schedule, especially with the case studies from 2024 onwards. And like we said, we can't wait to keep bringing you more um, episodes of quality, uh, interviews and guests of quality to help you train smarter and race faster. So thanks again. We'll see you in the next episode.